Welcome to the T's and C's. Tisa and Chantel. Also known as the Terms and Conditions. Welcome to Surviving Society's T's and C's, Tiso and Chantel, also known as the Terms and Conditions podcast. This is our weekly COVID-19 global pandemic reflection where we talk about the current moment, politics surrounding that and how sociology can maybe help us come to terms with grapple and perhaps reconcile with things that are happening or things that are becoming more overt within this moment. We are really, really excited to have someone very, very special to both me and Tiso on the podcast today. (laughs) Our very, very good friend and our colleague, Paulette Williams, who is the founder and CEO of Leading Roots, which Tiso and I are both involved in. Leading Roots aims to strengthen the academic pipeline for Black, African and Caribbean students across UK higher education sector. Paulette has been working in widening participation, student success and academic policies more broadly for over 15 years now we're just really grateful to have her in our lives but also we think it's important that our listeners recognize that she is a very very informed and important voice listen we be she's big to in the game she's just big in the game you get me she's just oh, big in the game also, I, didn't, I didn't tell her what i was gonna say then because i knew i knew she tried to stop me picking her up so i was just like right, I'm, I'm telling them i'm telling them how it is we are going to be talking about uk universities and the higher education sector more broadly for this mini so today but we would like to focus on the responses from the sector following the black lives matter global moment basically mm. that we're in mm. obviously we're all friends so we've been speaking over the past few weeks about how we feel our sector's been responding to this moment but we do feel like it's important that we're public with our reflections because it seems like lessons are still not being learned about how you truly rectify and reconcile the inequities that are faced by black students in higher education. I'm deep in reflective mode as well as writing mode, so I'm mm. ready to come for the next because I'm pissed <laughs> off right now. I hear that. It'd be good for you to tell us your sort of reflections about some of the responses. Yeah, I guess the initial responses were obviously via Twitter. I was kind of like just watching them come through as like really empty tweets and then like watching all the backlash underneath every single tweet of people just being like, yeah, so if that's the case, how comes there's a water gap? If that's the case, how comes, you know, yeah, hiring black staff, if that's, you know, and, you know, obviously them not responding to that at all, (laughs) because what can they say? I think it's fair to say, I I don't mind saying that I I was sort of dreading the institution that I work at. I work at UCL. I was sort of dreading them responding and they left it to the end of the day. (laughs) I was like, oh no, you didn't have to, it's okay. (laughs) But they did. They did. Um. This is what I think is funny about the sector is they kind of don't realise how interlinked ethnic minorities are across the country. Mm. So everyone's messaging each other like, oh, this institution. Yeah, my uni did this. My uni ain't said nothing. Oh, we're waiting for this, we're waiting for that. And it's like, 
it's almost like they just don't know who is necessarily going to be interested and who has got a stake in the sorts of statements that they're making and how we're a lot of us are actually in contact with each and other. And also a little bit, I feel like they can't, not that they, they can win, but I kind of knew regardless what they did, it was going to go a little bit wrong, right? So like yeah. there'll be students that are like, or I saw on Twitter that were like, my uni hasn't said anything all day, you know? Yeah. So yeah. Like, there's still like some people that are like waiting. And then when they did finally put something out, I, I was initially quite, quite happy because I was like, oh, wow, it's not an empty tweet. Like they've actually taken the time to write a piece. It, I was speaking to Chantel and she was like, babe, <laughs> it's Bane, it's black. And I was like, oh no, this is where it went wrong. You know, because like... <laughs> You hashtag no tea because they use the hashtag. They use the hashtag Black Lives yeah. Matter and then they just hashtag. Yeah, pain. and then yeah. it's just another reminder of the way that institutions just group us all together and they don't even really understand the nuances, even when it's literally in the word, literally in the, of the hashtag. <laughs> in terms of the responses, it was difficult to win, but I think if you had people that were a bit more informed on the teams that were putting together, or just asked a few more people, because I don't necessarily think it was we can sit here and say like well only white people did it and that's why it wasn't maybe didn't go right it's just getting more views and more input from different people all the institutions all these big corporates this was a a reactive thing so they see wow people are just jumping up boom we need to kind of jump on this already Mm -hmm. man's got a pr team right because it's a corporate move because these are corporate businesses right so they pull out their moves there they hashtag that listen they're not thinking this is a a reactive way to survive because this is what i need people to understand we have been in the pandemic right so the economies have been in pause universities have no money their funding is cut man hundreds of millions are going right because students are not coming within this context within that economic context right I need to play the game. I need to play the long game. I need to play the side that's saying I'm um, following upon the pandemic and being a nationalist, but also following the hashtags, right? Because I need that pain. So in that context, what is this all Black Lives Matter in this agenda, in the higher education sphere? Because there's no money there, man. There is no mm. money. Three months of not being active. There's no people for anyone. Listen, there's no people for any for jobs, man. You get me? In that context, are these people, we know for a fact they haven't acted in good faith right now, up until this point. In the context of no money, what do you think they're doing? Yeah, I agree too. I agree. There's always some form of business case behind it, isn't there? It did backfire, but equally, after the Twitter side of things, there was another side of things where it was like students began emailing their program directors and leaders and stuff and challenging, you know, and I'm not just talking about black students or even BAME students, I'm talking about white students as well that were like, why have you not? spoken about this on my program I've been here for a whole year and no one's mentioned race and you know we did such and such module where you could have easily have spoken about it but you didn't and I think that's another side of this where you know everyone's going to be challenging now it's not just the black people's issue (laughs) it's like everyone's going to be coming for you lot and I think that's when people begin to panic a little bit and just start thinking oh gosh what are we going to do you guys possibly share these frustrations as well. There were a couple of things that have been happening over the past few weeks that I found particularly unsettling. Um, And they relate to particularly my white peers and colleagues' responses to this moment. And I think it was Aaron Winter and Aurelia Monden that we were speaking to the other day, Tiso, that were talking about the sort of liberal, paranoid, hyper-vigilant 
responses to this Black Lives Matter moment, being sort of reactive, but also like, I don't want to be on the wrong side of history, or I want to be someone that's that's saying they support Black Lives Matter, but kind of like turning to their Black and Brown peers about what they should be doing and I just found that process I know some people some people didn't get as many messages as others but I got a lot I just found it completely overwhelming because I feel like there's a lot of scholarship there's been a lot of work there's been a lot of leaders that have explained to these particular groups number one what needs to happen for more equitable structures within higher education and number two varying roles in how they have been complicit in this stuff and what they can do to not be and to sort of be to just experience the messages and emails from people kind of like panicking it just made me think what was happening when you were in the audience listening to those panels and listening to those black people tell you about what their life had been like in higher education or those students that you've made do a focus group like what was that actually for and obviously there's been a lot of people particularly within the sociology of education that have spoken about how these mechanisms within institutions don't actually work the last few weeks have sort of really shone a light to me on how much people weren't listening to be honest but they were listening they were always listening boom it's like those people that like said they complain about the environment and then and then do what what they recycle something that's it and that, that's all they, but they'll lecture people about stuff they go to all the marches and then what go starbucks and say listen i'll put my cup in that bin that's me doing my bit that's them people they'll come to leading routes they'll come to the things they'll sit there yeah boom it's hard to be committed right People will say stuff, but it's hard to be down because when it comes to being down, when it comes to be counted, what do people do? I, In my life, in my personal life, I don't know many people that live by what they say, that truly live by what they say. But T, these are even people that told me they got These are people that told us they got it in yeah, their, listen, various, listen, listen, their listen. various ways of saying and doing What's whatever. The old word? Actions they... speak louder than words, isn't it? Actions. I can say a load of shit, man. I've said a load of shit to people a lot and don't mean fuck all, right? Until I do it. Boom. So if I'm saying your pal, I'm your pal. I'm there in it. Boom. Nothing more. Say no more. Yeah. I feel like there's like different, as you were speaking, as both of you were speaking, there were different things that were running through my head. So Chantal was speaking, I was kind of like, well, we do ask people to ask us, right? So like, there is that element of even the example I just gave where I was like, well, they should have asked more people. It's like we do ask people to ask, but I think there's just a different dynamic when it comes to um, like us discussing pain. Yeah. And I think that's where my issue lies. It's like, if you're going to try and if you want us to speak about all the traumatic things that have happened to us within higher education and within these toxic environments, I think it's, unfair particularly for students to have them sharing at the end of your conference to you know the the student panel sharing all these things that have happened and then a the students not getting anything from it because as much as people are like I think the students really you know they got something from sharing and kind of getting it off their chest no they really didn't it just kind of brought up everything all over again so that didn't really help them Equally, the the particular situation that they were talking about wasn't addressed by the institution. So that's still probably unresolved in 99% of the cases. And then furthermore, in about two, three months time, maybe even 12 months time, you're going to do this whole exercise again. 
and you're going to get because you want more you want more it's just never enough this is never enough of these traumatic experiences for anyone to just believe that it happened and it happens all the time yes even in your institution yes even in your department but you don't need to hear that one black student in your department saying it just take it from the, all the other research that's been done so, you know so what i mean have, you have a commodification of of pain, right? And this doesn't happen just in, in, yeah, in, 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 in with, with, with our stories. It happens with mental illness. happens with poverty. So you commodify mm-hmm. this. And in the structure, people build off careers. They, in fact, build departments off of this, right? Build curriculum off of this. But what gets done? It doesn't address the structural issue because the structural issue is a difficult thing to attend to. So they individualise it. I'll talk about your pain. I'll talk about your pain. And like you said, rinse and repeat. Since this thing's happened, all I've seen now is a flood of stories. Like last night on Channel 4, Chantel, remember I told you, there was a five-minute section the first time someone was racist to a black person. Traumatic stories, traumatic stories. Why? Listen, listen. Why? All you need to do is go back and watch Roots, man. You don't even need to do that. Go back and watch Roots, man. (laughs) (laughs) And you're seeing, you're seeing, for me, this is of interest to me as well, in terms of my research, you're seeing quite a lot of black people creating space and talking openly about being in predominantly white areas, growing up in predominantly white areas, being in predominantly white um, institutions, like like what we're talking about in terms of university. Whilst these are important stories, they're not, like you say, T, they're not new. And I guess I come back to the point of my frustration with getting all these these emails is people have been telling you this for years, for decades. I don't necessarily have a solution to my ponderings here, but it's more that I'm frustrated about what Paulette was just taught, taught saying then. Like, when is it enough? And how much more proof do you need? And who gets to validate that proof? Who gets to say that proof is authentic or not? And it seems like it's white people because mm-hmm. because they are the majority within this country and they've now decided that there has to be a national PR ca- campaign that talks about Black Lives Matter. Right. Right. You're the right? Yeah. And this is, what I think, when you when you talk about, when we talk about marginalised movements, we have to understand that we're still operating in the structure. So women only got the vote when men let them have the vote, right? Black people only got the vote when they let us have the vote. Franchise was extended to working class people until which people allowed them to have that vote. So we're still in that thing where the, until they allow us. So right now, they said it's cool. Right now it's cool. Because we've, we've been doing the same thing since when? And now they say, yes, boom, now it's cool. I don't know why, particularly right now it's cool, but whatever. Right, so we're here. How do we go from from talking about this? Now, now we have individualised stories. You have hundreds of years of this stuff, right? Academically, uh, journalistically, whatever you want. You've got it all, right? But now how do I concretize that and turn it into actual policy? Because policy, what is policy? Policy is where you freeze power, right? That's how you control power. People have told them, Teague, people, uh, sorry to interrupt you, but the policies, the structures for the policies and the contents of the policies are there. From, from our, yeah, no, from our point of view, right? Listen, remember, it's at their behest, right? So you, it's can't just open the floodgates. No, no, no. From our from point our, of view, from our from people, our... from people that are our allies, <laughs> have produced research, have produced policies. There are institutions like Runnymede, for example, <laughs> yeah. that have consistently told government Runnymede. what they have to do. They've told government, they've told higher education, they've told universities. These are things that you have to do to change your structures. <laughs> My problem right. is 
but they're now saying again, what do we do? What do we do? We told you. Wait. We've told you. And I think this is the problem as well. It's kind of like, it's he, not a person that I particularly want yeah. to quote, but David Lammy did tweet it today <laughs> or yesterday. On his rebrand. Sorry, brand. I, I David, had, on I your rebrand. Yeah. What's he saying? <laughs> he said, you know, he listed however many reports mm-hmm. that have been done. And, you know, all of these reports have a recommendation oh, yeah, section. Yeah, yeah. And that recommendation section is like they cherry pick whatever seems like the quickest fix, whatever seems like the easiest thing to do, and then disregard the report. It happened even with the leading roots report, right? And it was, you know, we had to tweet again all of the recommendations that were talking more about the systemic changes that could be made. And even, I don't even think those were particularly deep, deep. Like they weren't even, they were just like things that would take a lot more effort than just financially, you know, throwing some money at the, the problem. And I think that's where people don't want to do the work in terms of making these changes. They don't want to put the the time and effort into like the longer term things that need to be done. And they'd much rather that, you know, the, the quick this fixes. Is scared. And this work kind of ties back into my kind of cynicism at the start of the, uh, start of the episode. So in the context of universities having no money, right? And that's this is going to be a real thing for everyone, especially these big institutions. Some of them, mm. some especially, of especially, them, especially, some especially, of especially the big ones that have lots, that get lots of money, right? So the big ones that um, what are they called? Mm. The other ones I'm talking about, yeah, them ones, right? So, intensive, right. Yeah. so there's a yeah. shortfall. So how vested or how interested are you going to be pushing to push this agenda? Given that this, this research is there already, you don't need to do it again. This is what makes me cynical, right? This moment, I, I'm very hopeful. I'm so hopeful, but then I think to myself, hmm. What's going to be the, the first, first thing to go? To go? Because there is no money. People are going to lose jobs. This is going to be a fact across the economy, right? People have already lost, yeah. It's going to get Britain. Britain, the UK, is the worst place for the recession in Europe, right? That This is a fact right, right now. So this downturn will be next level. And so what, who, what's the first thing that's going to come off the agenda? From now, I don't want to be uh, again. I don't want to be cynical, but from experience, we always come off the agenda first, man. We always come off the agenda. They're like yeah. checklist, black people. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Get me. Like, it's true, it's it's funny, it's true. It's true. You come it off the agenda true. first, and then all like, true. wait, black people, women, uh, trans, right? Okay, we just got white. People, yes, white people, you cool, you cool. White, no, white men. We've got white men, yes, white men, rich white men. We're cool, we're cool, we're good, we're good, we're good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I I agree with you to an extent, to be fair to you. And I think one of the things that um I realised, it was more, it was sort of just before sort of BLM and more around like the COVID situation and all the ad- adaptations and, and, you know, changes that were made as a result of that. And I posed the question, like, you know, can we reflect on our decision-making policies here? Can we reflect on how we make decisions and why we make decisions when when we really need to? All of that is out the window. You know what I mean? Like, all of that, it doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> right, let's just do it. When it comes to us asking for certain things, they're denied um, for, for no real apparent reason, but the fact that people don't want to take a risk. They don't want to. They don't want to. Full stop. Yeah. <laughs> 
you know, and then suddenly this happens and, you know, we can start making decisions a lot easier. Processes for making decisions are a lot quicker. So typically they might say, you know, we've got to wait for such and such board and that meets once every term and you've got to wait. But here we are. Things are changing within weeks, days. That's frustrating. It's frustrating, but it does it opens the door for possibility um yeah to an yeah. extent but by who you know what if it's if it comes to the point where after this you know maybe go back to quote unquote normal whatever that is when that happens is it always going to be black people that are bringing up oh but what about when it was covid and you did xyz because that's not going <laughs> to go down well <laughs> It's just not. It's not. So it's like, who is the one that's going to keep reminding them, you know, that that this change was possible? We've all worked in organisations, right, where diversity is a big thing. We've got diversity boards and people sit there. No, talking talk, about and, diversity. No, and so I, I was in the bank and we they would act on it and they would have committees and would do stuff, produce lots of reports. And you would do like low hanging fruits, easy to get. Right. But when it comes to real structural systemic mm. change, because... Ultimately, like I said, policy freezes power, right? And in their calculation, there's a calculation that I might lose my job. I could lose out. There's a power there's a power, mm-hmm. there's a power issue mm-hmm. here, right? Because if I change the structure, that mm-hmm. means I might lose something. So by giving mm-hmm. someone more stuff, by giving black people more, whatever it will be, in whatever institution, it somehow... In some, equity. Equ- well, in some people's head, equity might mean I lose out. It might mean, well... Because they're favouring this group, this group might lose up. The people run those calculators, binary calculations in their head. It's not, there's no basis in reality, but that's a human reaction, right? People feel that. And I, I've seen it in the organisations, but organisations think, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, there's an actual woman joining the team. She might change something. And, and it's that fear, reactionary, to kind of call Aaron and Raylan. I actually think, but you can explain this to me and you can, like, mm. school me on this. But I kind of do think that there will be things that people will have to lose in order for other people to gain. Like, that's just how it's going to be. And that's when I think all this support that Black Lives Matter is is getting at the moment is going to stop because people are going to do the reading, they're going to do the supporting, they're going to do the posters, whatever it is that they're doing. And then eventually it's like, no, you're going to have to relinquish some power in order for other people to come through. But do you not do you not think? When I look at the history of ideas and things come, initially there is a there is an initial reaction that change does is is somehow detrimental, right? And that's how people thought at the time. But then when you come to think of it, so when when um if you think about when man was fucking executing people and, and sacrificing people and magical is the thing, and then someone said, Listen, do you know the earth revolves around the sun? People were against that. Then it turns out oh, it was a good thing for everyone, right? So change is painful at start, right? But eventually Listen, all the stuff we've got now, change, man. The right to vote, civil rights, boom. These things were painful at the time for people. And they're always going to be painful. Change necessarily involves some kind of pain. But eventually, boom, give enough time, people forget, right? And things change. True, true, true. It's like when they change. This is the pushback I'm getting from people because ultimately, like you said, once you run the calculation, there is going to be some kind of change, right? Now, what what kind of change do people are scared? Because what kind of future is that? They don't know. It's uncertain. Right now, status quo state, state, and they've done their best to maintain that status quo. Pragmatically, ruthlessly, sometimes like mercilessly to maintain that status quo. And when they do give change, it's pragmatic, isn't it? Right? So they give us the right to vote. They give us the independence in their own country, but it's not full independence. 
because they're not sure that difference. And right now, when you see China being up and coming, you see how people are scared to change, right? Shit, China, what are they going to do? Fuck knows, right? <laughs> they might be as bad as the Americans, but change is scary, man. Drawing to Paulette's question there, T, about people giving up mm. stuff, this speaks to bringing it back to the sector, mm. higher education universities. Yeah. Giving up stuff also means understanding that you've misinterpreted what equity means with regards to black people within uh, higher education. And that misinterpretation mm. has manifested with you either tokenizing, not taken seriously, or treating scholarship that has told you about your institutions with ambivalence. And I think that one of the things that me and Paulette in particular have been concerned about with regards to stuff we've been doing at Leading Roots is how people seem to be repeating already, repeating things that have happened before that have either already informed us on institutional racism or have proved to not actually work in tackling structural inequalities. And I get... I didn't use the right word, ambivalence, right? And indifference, right? Like... Like they weren't really bothered one way or the other. I turn up to that ambivalence. Yeah. And I, I think like Bauman's analysis is it kind of works. Um, ambivalence, right? You, you've been indifferent to me. Yeah. But indifference has been that toleration in a negative sense. You don't care one way or the other. Rolling it back to the beginning when Paulette was talking about um, some of the institutions um, conflating hashtag Black, Black Lives Matter with hashtag fame, Black, Asian, minority, ethnic. And rolling it back to um, when we were talking about the Leading Roots Broken Pipeline report. So one of the things we did in this report is we were focused on trying to show um, how few black students were being awarded UK RI Research Council funding. And it was 1.2% of black and mixed black African and Caribbean students across a three year period. So those are really, really, really horrendous Mm. figures. And although we had we had some relatively good responses from the sector more broadly, and some and within the report we we put recommendations, as you said, Paulette, like um, talking about Lamy, referring to different um, reports on recommendations. <laughs> we don't have to say it again. <laughs> we put key recommendations in the report, and one of the key recommendations that we stand by is positive action. The only way that you can really fully and fully engage with erasing some of these structural inequalities is through positive action some of the ways that this has been applied to while citing our report has been very interesting to witness and it's important that we talk about this stuff during this moment as people seem to be being reactionary to how they address their institutional racism and we were talking about in the broken pipeline report black African and Caribbean students, right? Mm-hmm. People have set up, of, in a, of, I'm sure it was well-intentioned, BAME or BME scholarships in response to our report. This is about specificity. Mm-hmm. And one of the clear things that we say at Leading Roots and what Paulette teaches me about constantly with regards to policy, education policy in particular, mm-hmm. is that you have to have racialized and ethnicized specificity in order to fully understand how structural in institutional racism manifests. If you are reading a report about the issues and the structures that are faced by black people within university education, then take it as that. But mm. unfortunately, people 
white people, variety of people, it comes from a variety of groups, unfortunately, do are inclined to and continue to homogenize the structural inequality that we face. And that isn't going to lead to equity, that we come from different walks of life. We come from different structural histories. We come from different backgrounds. We come from different socioeconomic backgrounds. There's different histories there. We are not all the same, but one shoe doesn't fit all, basically. (laughs) Do you think now, in this this moment going forward, do you recognise now, if you can think of it like a kind of like a, on a spectrum, so you have X date, Prior to the left, that was the old world, but this new world going forward, do you reckon right now, so the word BAME disappears and we have things clearly clearly delineated for black people, like they do similar to what they have in America, black colleges. All right, I'll put my UCL (laughs) hat on for a minute and I'll say this, yeah. Say, for example, I work on the BAME awarding gap Mm. at UCL. So for me... I can see how on a very practical level, it kind of makes sense to to address the issue of race collectively within an institution for the purposes of reaching staff members, getting buy-in from leadership, making sure that we get enough resource. Like, I don't think they're going to hire a person in my role that just deals with the problems of one ethnicity mm. within an institution you know what I mean so I think there comes a point in in within organizations where BAME does serve a purpose like I'm not completely dismissing it what's important to remember is that within that you still need to address the nuances and the different experiences of the students so within my role and within the project that we work on you know, there are people that are working specifically on issues that Muslim women are facing. Mm. You know, there are people that are working on issues directly affecting black students. And you can do that within one project that is called the BAME Awarding Gap Project. Right. But I think what happens a lot in institutions is that like just basically what Chantel said, it's just all collected together without any kind of understanding of these different experiences. And I think that's where that's where the issues arise mm. as an institution. Sorry, T, I forgot your actual question. But, is, it possible, uh, <laughs> is it possible for institutions moving forward to be more specific about who they are talking to? Yes, I think, yeah. So in answer to your question, yes, but that, that doesn't mean it, it can't be done under the banner of BAME. I think there are different times that you can use, you can speak specifically to black students or specifically to Asian students or, you know, specifically to Chinese students, overseas students. Mm. And I think what happens is people are scared to say black or scared to say this is for Asian students or this is an issue for whatever set of students through fear of being, I don't know what the fear you are, you all know, you know. Talk that you can't call out anyone by their ethnicity, you can't fail one group of the right, that's what yeah. you've been told right so but they taught each other that majority of people that are in power are people that are white within the uk they have told each other that this is the way to do things there will have had some yeah. collaborators as we've spoken about many times on the podcast before 
black and brown people yeah. that have facilitated <clears throat> these conversations of homogenization but ultimately they've just told each other that this is the the mean and, of- and and again it reflects a kind of hierarchy and their presence is marked by their absence they don't define themselves right so they they don't define themselves and they rank people in my brief experience going going right to, when i apply for my phd going to all the kind of universities you'd see that You'd see it. I go to certain universities, I, I won't say you no know, names, but I see them thinking, raw, is that how you got going on? And then when I look for the black people, there's about, well, me and some other dude. It's always me and some other dude. And I give him the obligatory black man nod. What are you saying? Of course, yeah. <laughs> what are you it's saying? Necessary. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like, you know what I also feel like, um, back to Chantel's point about the scholarships, what we are going to be interested in is who who have you awarded those scholarships to yeah now that these are in place who who got the money particularly based on you know our report because what sometimes happens when we try to address these issues collectively is that well not even sometimes often is that the people that are most marginalized which in most cases are black people are left out it just doesn't work out well for us, mm. which is why for me, Leading Roots is so important that we are supporting black students and black scholars and we, we don't stray from that because ultimately they're not black students' voice needs and everything so else. So do you think we are we'll end up in a situation where we are already, essentially? So where most of our help comes from external where we make our own institutions, our own groups to help our own people because Internally, these systems tend to fail. Is that what is that what we're saying? Yeah, I think. Well, there's um, a group that's doing it at the moment. What are they called? Sean? Uh, Free Black University. Free Black University. So they're they're working on that now, and I think the question always does come up about could we have a you know black university historically historically black university like in America? I would love to see it. But what I do think, and this is um, quoting Kahinde Andrews, is that it's not enough to be black in academia, he always says. And, I, and you know, I think when he first said that, I was like, Kahinde, why are you trying to sabotage my thing? Like, why have you come to our event? Why are you saying this? <laughs> like, I learned, I, I really un- I listened true. to what he was saying. And if we replicate all the things that happen in these predominantly white institutions in a black institution, we've completely missed the opportunity and it's just, it's just going to reproduce all the issues that we have in those institutions as well. So my answer is yes, I think we could, but it would have to be really, really like revolution. This is what I'm saying. This is where we are. Revolution. Like you have to start again. Like you have to start, throw everything again. Start again. No, like seriously, start again. Start again. Start again. P money. P W. Listen, man, I'm gonna see you soon. I knew we were gonna go. I knew we were gonna go over. But I think the people. I think everyone needs to hear this, particularly if you work in the um, university sector, like. We obviously are part of a broader coalition of people that are talking about these things, are concerned about these things. This is just our contribution to it. Um, But yeah, it would be good if people could just really consider what their roles are and what their positions are in the quest for more equity, particularly for black students in UK universities. And yeah, I I think this is a key thing, Shanta, and I think what people tend not to do is think man 
like thinking's hard. Like people say they think they sit there and ponder and stuff. Like I find that difficult. Like when I read the book, I can read the book, but actually think about that book. It's a different exercise. And for the first time, I'm asking white people to think not about the individual or how it acts, about the structure, how they fit into it. Well, now they're telling us they're actually listening. Yeah. Well, I was telling them before, but now they're saying, because it's not about me anymore. Listen, listen, I am good. Listen, man's fully versed on it. I'm fully versed on you. I'm fully versed, man. I need you not to think, man. I need you not to think because that's the realness because you haven't really thought about it. So, man, you need to get out your Aristotle, your your Socrates, all their man's there and sit there and ponder. Ponder on black lives. Ponder. Come to my yard. Ponder. <laughs> I love that ponder. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us. Um, oh, and and uh, listeners, <laughs> if you haven't already, please check out Leading Roots. Check out Paulette Williams. She's a legend. And we're very lucky yeah. to have her um, in our sector. Lucky to have you guys. And also, I just want to say, and maybe this is not how you want to end your podcast, but you guys are so amazing. Like the work that you're doing, just like keep going, keep educated. Like it's really important. Thank you, so Thank you both. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye, listeners.